BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. And welcome to the Sports Media Watch podcast. This is John Lewis along with Drew Lerner. Today, we're talking with Matt Weiner of Turner Sports. That's our main interview. We'll also talk a little bit about the U.S. Open, some other sports media topics. But before we get into all of that, don't forget to subscribe to the SMW podcast feed on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. We're just going to jump right into our interview with Matt Weiner of Turner Sports and NBA TV. We talk about a lot of topics, NBA-related and also related to his time with ESPN. Enjoy. Well, today we are very pleased to be joined by a familiar face if you watch the NBA, uh, the great Matt Weiner of Turner Sports and NBA TV. You might have seen him covering the NBA Finals from Denver, Games 1, 2, and 5 for NBA TV over the past couple of weeks. You might remember him a little bit from SportsCenter as well. He was an anchor there for many years. And uh, Matt, we're just uh, very happy to have you joining us here today. Thank you so much. Guys, good to be with you. I appreciate it. I'm I'm already a little intimidated because you threw the word great in front of my name, and that, that can't be true. Well, you know, uh, hey, uh, don't, no, no need to be uh, humble, right? You just, uh, you got to be, uh, you don't need to be like Jokic. Just accept uh, accept the greatness, right? Well, that's what he does. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But let's go ahead and get started there, actually. you kind of a perfect place to start. Covering the NBA Finals, uh, you did games one and two and five for NBA TV. But it's always interesting during the finals, they bring in Charles and Shaq and Kenny after their regular duties are done. And it always seems every year like they're surprised that they have to still do the finals. They they do the the inside the NBA finale, and it's like we're going on vacation. It's like, no, you always do the finals every year. Uh, what's it like working with them? Could you kind of feel that they were a little stir crazy and ready to 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 go, or was it uh, you know all systems go for that? Well, it's it's a fair point. It, it does seem every year to be a revelation to them that they have to continue work for at least a couple more weeks. Um, it's obviously it's super fun. We get I had I didn't have Kenny this year. I had Barkley and Shaq in in games one and two in Denver. Um, it, it's 
it's really interesting because our show, even though we're run by the same folks, is very different than inside the NBA in a lot of different ways. Uh, first and foremost, time. We're on the air a lot longer than they are typically. And in fact, um, you know, Shaq used to do nights on NBA TV. He would do a regular shift occasionally. Kenny would come over and do nights as well. And the transition for them from a show that airs during the regular season once a week for, you know, a short pregame and like a 45-minute postgame to a night when they might be on for three or four hours is jarring for them. Uh, they're just not used to it. It was it was jarring for me when I came from ESPN. It's a lot of time to build. And, you know, there's good and bad of that. You can really do a deep dive on any NBA topic you want to. And there are other times when you're like, okay, we've covered this. We're still talking about it. And it feels like it's exhausted itself. Um, so that's something they have to get used to. And by the post game of game two, to answer your question about them being stir crazy, the last two or three segments, I think we pretty much lost Chuck and Chet. Uh, and we were joking about it. We had a vacation clock up on our show. And, you know, they were getting silly and things that were being discussed during commercial breaks were coming out on the air and no one had any idea what they were talking about. And, um, you know, it's it's fun having them on, but they were definitely ready to head to wherever they go in the summertime by the end. Of yeah. Well, you have done the regular inside show a few times. What is that like coming in as the substitute? Do you feel like the substitute teacher when you're doing that? Yes. yes. You do. And it's it's been a while since I've done it. I did it a lot my first few years at what we used to call Turner Sports. I don't know what to call it anymore. Warner Brothers Discovery Sports. Um, I did it a lot for the first, I don't know how many years that was, probably five years I was there. And it's, first of all, it, it's an honor to be on the show because everyone loves the show. Um, but you're keenly aware of the fact that you're not Ernie, that it's his show, that there's a special rapport amongst the folks on that desk and you're to a certain degree even though i you know i have relationships with all these guys i see them around um we're all nice to each other we like each other etc but to a certain degree you're an interloper on their thing right and so you always feel like you just don't want to mess it up and maybe that's the wrong approach to take maybe you should try to be a little more bold and put your stamp on it but i always felt like i just don't want to mess up the show that people adore um so it is a little bit like being a substitute teacher and there was no there was no issue with you know like wrangling the conversation everyone was respectful and nobody was jumping all over me because i was the substitute host but in the back of my mind at least and maybe that wasn't true for the producers tim kiley or jeremy levin whoever it was but in the back of my mind you can't help but feel like you know this is not your seat you're filling in and you're, you're taking up EJ's spot for, for a night or two or whatever the circumstances do. You know, that's uh, something we've seen Kevin Frazier do recently. Uh, uh, I think, uh, let's see, Casey Stern has had that role a few times, Vince Cellini. So you've got a lot of company there uh, having uh, stepped in for EJ, but obviously 30 years solid for Ernie Johnson. That's, that's, that's Costas at the Olympics, basically. It is. It's amazing. I believe, and I, I somebody would have to research this for me, but I believe until they called in Kay Frage, who I, I used to work with at ESPN a long time ago, I think I was the only person on the planet who had ever hosted both SportsCenter and Inside the NBA. That's and interesting. So I was slightly irritated about that because I've got so, so few things on which to hang a hat. And I had this one little 
you know, this this one little uh, oddity that, uh, you know, in terms of a, a resume that I could I could hang on to. And then Kevin came in and I was instantly, I thought, ah, now, now you've done it. Now we've both done it. So I, I've got to find something else. Well, you got to host entertainment tonight now. You got to find a way out of that. Right, <laughs> right. Because he's got that locked down. Yeah, that's a fair point. I don't know that I'm in the running for that anytime soon, but yeah, sign me up. But Wheel of Fortune has an opening coming up. So, you know, go for that one. <laughs> I would love that. I would love that. I, I really, um, I, I've said this uh, to somebody else publicly, I know. Hosting Jeopardy would have been one of my dream jobs. And I know myself pretty well. I'm not a, a bragging type of person, but I would have been good at that. That's a job I could do and I'd be good at. And of course, I didn't get it. And they didn't consider me because they wanted more famous people, which I'm sure they'll want to do a fortune as well. But, you know, if somebody's listening, I'm ready. Spin it. Let's go. Five out. Oh, they could bring back Sports Jeopardy. Did you watch that one with Dan Patrick, Sports Jeopardy? I don't remember that. I, You know, now that you're mentioning it, that is vaguely familiar to me, but I don't know that I ever saw that. that it sounds to me like that probably didn't have a long run. No, but it was on NBCSN. You know, they put it on after the Olympics a few times, okay. you know. Yeah, but uh, let's talk a little bit about your your previous uh, stops along the way. Uh, you mentioned uh, ESPN Sports Center. Worked there 2001 to 09. We were talking about this before we hit the record button. Uh, I think you were part of the Golden Age of Sports Center because the Golden Age of Sports Center to me is, hey, is Robin Roberts still anchoring? Is Charlie Steiner still anchoring? Obviously, Stu Scott, you know, Dan Patrick. You were basically everybody but Olbermann was still there when you started back in 2001. And Sports Center at that time was a cultural phenomenon in a way that it's impossible to be today. I'm curious what that was like coming in as a newbie back then. Well, I, I think your perspective may be generational, right? Because a lot of folks look back at the Keith and Dan Sports Center of the 1990s as the golden age of Sports Center. Um, when I got there, and I worked with all the people you just mentioned at one time or another, did, did sports centers with each and every one of those folks. So, you know, coming in, I think I was 31 or two when I started that job. Um, it's pretty daunting, right? To get there, you've been watching since I was working in local TV for nine years, four different places. And at night, like anybody else, watching sports center or watching it the next morning. So you know all these faces, you know all these people, at least they're on-air personas. And then suddenly you find yourself sitting next to them doing a show and you discover what I've always told my kids about famous people is that they're just people um, who are famous mostly because they do one thing really, really well. Um, but it's interesting to get to know them as people and get an inside look at who does what well and who doesn't do things you might have guessed uh, they did well, as well as you thought. Um, getting a, a peek behind the curtain and seeing how the, the sausage is made and all that was fascinating. And obviously it was great for my career. Um, and it's a completely different job than working in local TV. It's just, there's so much more, at least at that time, so much more writing. I don't know that they do a lot of writing anymore, um, which as someone who, who appreciates writing, bums me out a little bit, but um, there's a lot more writing. There's a pace to it that is very specific to SportsCenter, at least back then. And I had to retrain myself when I came here um, because the pace is very different. And, you know, it's cool. You know, all of a sudden your friends and family back home can see you on SportsCenter. And you hear, you hear from people and you, you know, you hear from 
folks knew a long time ago and and your mom can brag on you a little bit and all that stuff and it's cool you mentioned you worked at four different local stations before going to espn what was kind of the biggest thing you picked up along the way at the beginning of your career there that translated or was you know kind of a calling card for you um going to a national uh station like espn well you know first of all for some context that's kind of what people did back then. Uh, I'm 54. I graduated college in 1991. And unless you were a, you know, Mike Tirico, Bob Costas sort of prodigy, chances are you were going to start in some small market local station. Um, and there's good and bad to that. I started in Billings, Montana. I made 13.5 my first year there on the job. Um, so, you know, not lucrative. I was living next door to Mormon missionaries at one point because we could both afford the same level of rent. Um, but you also get to figure out what you're good at and what you're not good at. And there aren't many repercussions either way. So in, in Billings, Montana, as my uh, news director, the guy who hired me told me there are more cattle than people, more cattle, more cattle than viewers. So if you make mistakes, which as a 22 year old, you're, you're likely to, it's okay, we're learning. Um, and so I guess to answer your question is over time, over those nine years, I figured out what I was good at. And what I was good at was the anchoring part. I was, I've always been a, a good writer. Um, I'm pretty good at reading my own writing. I can get through a highlight. Um, I wasn't as good as an enterprising reporter and, I, and I've known some really good ones in local TV. That just wasn't a strength of mine. Um, and when, when I worked in St. Louis, which was my my fourth and final stop, and also my hometown, um, you know, I struggled with that a little bit because there were four people on that staff, and I was fourth on the totem pole. So I wasn't going to get a ton of burn uh, in an anchor seat. So I, I had to get better at that, and I could write a good piece, but I wasn't always great with the ideas and the contacts and all that stuff. And I, I think I did learned to craft and certainly all this was influenced by by the years of watching sports center but i learned to craft the lead-ins and how to read a highlight i learned what kind of humor works for me generally pretty subtle i'm not you know i'm not a big personality guy i'm not a screamer i'm not a catchphrase guy and you figure out all that stuff so in some ways you know would i like to have accelerated that process sure but in some ways i'm really grateful for all that time because you figure it out on the job what you're good at and what you're not as good at and kind of hone your style along the way you know kind of getting back to the, the finding the skills you were on the air for one of the most you know historic moments in nba history to the very negative side uh, obviously i'm talking about the day kobe bryant passed away you were anchoring on nba tv that day Mm -hmm. As a sportscaster, you are still a journalist. You learn those skills and apply them, obviously, in a circumstance like that. But what was that like in terms of, you know, just being on air that day, finding a way to, you were going to be doing, I believe, Rockets Nuggets that day. Uh, and your Sunday afternoon, Sunday afternoon game, where do you marshal your experience as a journalist to handle a moment like that on the air? There were so many unusual circumstances about that day. We don't have very many afternoon games on Sundays on NBA TV. 
And as you said, I was there to do a brief pregame, halftime, and I forget what was supposed to come after that. Um, as this news started to make its way to us, first unofficially, then officially, and so for a while we're like stalling because we don't know, yet. we can't break any news that hasn't been confirmed by the authorities. Um, but we're getting a sense of, of what's played out in California. The game is postponed at that point. Uh, and then to answer your question, this is where, you know, I, I call myself a small J journalist. You know, I'm not, I'm not exposing government corruption. Um, I'm not out in a war zone. Those people do real journalism uh, that affects the world in important ways. But I'm a journalism school guy. And I adhere to those principles. And on a day like that, that comes in really handy. So it's it's the basics. Who, what, where, when, why. Uh, trying to give context to whatever we know. And when it happens in real time, as horrible as, as that day was, that's an exciting part of, of the job that doesn't come up very often. And uh, you were also anchoring that day alongside one of Kobe Bryant's teammates for many years, Brian Shaw, as well. Uh, and obviously, he was dealing with that loss that day. Uh, what was that experience like uh, working with someone who knew him personally? Well, it was it was another incredible coincidence uh, about that day that we were in studio. You know, we don't have a twenty four seven news operation. We happened to be there at an unusual time, and I happened to be sitting next to Kobe's teammate, longtime teammate and friend, uh, who's learning this in real time on the air and reacting. So, you know, he, he's, he's crying, uh, understandable. He's, it's, a, it's a bolt of lightning that's, that's struck for him. And at that point, again, the journalism background kicks in, but you're also trying to be Compassionate, um, I, I'm sure, and he was he was unbelievable. His willingness to remain on the air when they they told him that the producers told him if you need to step away, you're more than welcome. It's understandable. He stuck it out, uh, sat there, and 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 you talked about stuff, and I was able to ask him questions. Again, trying to be as sensitive as possible to the situation, um, but I was able to ask him things. Because, you know, as information is coming in, and this happens, you see it all the time on, on CNN or whatever whatever you watch for, for live news, whatever it is. You know, you don't know very much at the beginning. You know basic facts, and then more and more becomes available. And to fill in the gaps, any, any host has to basically fill that time with as much context as they can. And fortunately, I had Brian next to me to help get into Kobe stories and what he was like as a person, what he was like as a teammate. And that was, you know, unbelievable. Again, it's just, a, it was a series of really interesting coincidences. That day. And of course, Brian Shaw has been through horrendous tragedy in his personal life, as most right. people know. So that's uh, another aspect of that. Uh, Drew, I'll, I'll bring you in here. Yeah, Matt, as, as an anchor, you know, experiencing that trauma in real time, um, is that even something that you yourself can begin to process while you're on the air or are you more at that point just kind of an air traffic controller you're not even thinking about you know your own emotions in that in that time more the latter um 
and, and it's easier because I didn't have a, I wouldn't say I had a personal relationship with Kobe. I, I'd met him, you know, a few times uh, in the course of my job. I didn't know him, um, not in any personal way. So it was sad for a lot of reasons. And it was sad for the NBA community. I knew people I worked with who knew him a lot better uh, one way or another. And I knew millions of fans around the world would be devastated by this because when Kobe was an active player, his fans were among the most loyal that I can recall. You know, anytime there was an argument about who's better or this or that, you know, Kobe fans could not be talked out of any position they staked out when it came to their guy. So I, I knew how this would land around the world, literally around the world. Uh, when it came to his passing. And so it was an emotional thing, but at the same time, it wasn't, you know, you want to take the right tone. And it was a sad day, of course, um, but not like it would be for his friends and certainly not his family. You know, a better example of, of something that hit home um, where I, I couldn't control my emotions was when our colleague Safety Smith passed away um, a year into COVID. And again, I happened to be there that day. We found out on a, uh, a group call as I was in the parking lot at work, coming into work, that he had passed. And I had to basically write an obit and make the announcement on live TV. And I, I just couldn't through it because there's someone I worked with a lot and who I really liked and spent a lot of time talking to. And, you know, that that's the difference between those two situations. Yeah. Do you think any experiences prior to to that um, kind of help you prepare for that? Or, or is that just kind of one of a kind? Not, not in Seku's case. I mean, I was able to write what I was going to write. Mm -hmm. And I, I got about halfway through it before I kind of broke down, which has never happened to me on, on yeah. TV before. I'm not a I'm not an especially emotional person. Um, and even though I tried to steal myself for the read and and getting through it, you know, I just couldn't. It was the reality of it hit home. Everyone in the studio knew Seku. Um, everyone in the building knew Seku. And we had just gotten this announcement like an hour and a half before everyone. So nothing prepares you for something like that. And honestly, I'm glad it played out the way it did because I've heard from so many people who were friends of Seku's uh, around the NBA community, fellow journalists primarily who were really appreciative of the fact that it was real emotion and that I was obviously shaken by what had happened. And they felt like that was appropriate for, you know, for, for the announcement of the passing of someone they really cared about. Obviously some heavy topics here. Uh, not always easy to go from a heavy topic to, to a different subject, but I did want to, while we still have you here, talk a little bit about some of your roles beyond the NBA. Obviously, when you worked for ESPN, you would cover all sports. With Turner's primarily been the NBA. For a little bit there, you were their host in the studio for baseball. Am I correct about that? You did yep. do the baseball show for a bit. Uh, that through, I don't know, maybe three seasons? Yeah, that was around when Ernie was doing the play-by-play. -play. Mm -hmm. uh, when you are given a role like that, and then they move to a different situation, they brought in Keith Olbermann, then Casey Stern, and now uh, Ernie's back doing it again. Uh, is it impossible not to take that personally, or is that just the breaks of the game? Uh, can I answer yes to both options? Sure. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, I've been in, uh, I mentioned I graduated in 91. I've been doing this continuously since. So that's whatever that is We're going on 32 full years. So, you know, I'm keenly aware of the ups and downs of, that the business has to offer. And I've been on both sides of those over my career. I feel incredibly fortunate that 30, almost 32 years in, no one has ever asked me to leave. Um, I've never not had a contract extension on the table when I moved from one place to another. That's pretty rare. And I remember telling my my wife when we were in college, when we were dating, if I stick with this business, this insane business, at some point, somebody's going to tell me to leave, right? And it hasn't happened, which is incredible. Um, but at the same time, you know, we all have aspirations. I'm not, I wouldn't say by TV standards, I'm a big ego guy, but I have an ego. We all do. And when someone comes to you and says, we don't want you to do this higher profile thing that you've been doing, sure, that hurts and you you don't feel good about it. Um, but at the same time, you know, these are, whims would be the wrong word, but these are the, the swings back and forth, either with new management or with whatever management feels is going wrong with a show. And so they make changes from time to time and that's their prerogative. If they run the place, they can they can put whomever they like in, in those seats. And so I've been on both sides of that. And I, and I suppose anybody who's been around this as long as I have probably has. Uh, Drew, did you want to get in another question uh, before? Uh... Uh, I, don't, I don't want to keep Matt for too long, but um, you know, you've done a lot of uh, basketball and, and baseball, of course, in your career. Are there any other sports that you would like to branch out into? Fencing. Fencing. I've been looking to do a lot of fencing. Um, I'm joking. <laughs> I don't know a thing about fencing. Uh, you know what I did a couple of years ago? I did handball oh. in BC. Uh, the folks at Turner were nice enough to to let me do the Olympics. And that had always been a dream of mine. I covered the 04 Olympics for, for ESPN for Sports Center, but that's not actually calling any events. It's mostly, in my case, it was standing on a roof in mm -hmm. Athens doing sports center hits uh, in the middle of the night and sending those back to Connecticut. Um, but calling an Olympics or honestly, again, Tariko's coming up here again, but Tariko's job it, has always been one of my dream jobs is being, you know, a primary host for the Olympics the way Bob Costas did. Bob Costas was one of my heroes as a kid. Growing up in St. Louis, he was calling Missouri Tiger basketball on the radio. Um, when I was young and he stuck around St. Louis for a long time. That's on the side. But um, you know, I always wanted to do that and I love the Olympics and I know they're corrupt and they're commercial and you know they're not what they they weren't the idea that that was invented, right? A hundred whatever years ago. But I still have a soft spot in my heart for the Olympics, for the international element of it, for the I don't know, the uh, socio-political stuff that is sort of underpinning all the competition. It's all interesting. So when the Beijing Olympics were postponed, I found myself with a chance to get in calling something, and it turned out to be handball, which most Americans know nothing about. And in fact, most Americans confuse with the sport played on a racquetball court with your hand and a, and a squishy ball, and it's not that at all. It's a great sport, and it's a sport that, frankly, the U.S. should be better at, um, if not for the fact that no one plays it. 
mm-hmm. it's all stuff yeah. that American athletes are already doing anyway. It's dribbling and throwing and jumping, uh, but no one grows up playing handball here, and so it's impossible for them to even qualify. But uh, I really enjoyed that. It was, you know, it was hard because it was in the middle of the night because of the time difference, and it very well could have taken a week or two off my life. Uh, sleeping in the middle of the day in a hotel in, in Stamford, Connecticut. But, um, you know, I, I really enjoyed that. And I got into the sport and the greatest compliment I got during that two, two and a half week stretch was from our analyst and from our stat guy, who was a, uh, a team member of the U.S. team, who said after a couple of days that I got, like I, I, I got the sport. And that was huge. Um, whether the audience knew that one way or another is irrelevant. But for me, I got it and I walked away and felt like, okay, that was cool. That was cool. That's great. And, you know, maybe, maybe fencing could be next. Although I think there's a few intricacies in that sport that might be harder to pick up than handball. Uh, yeah, I don't know any of them. But yeah. you know what? I knew, I knew a little bit about handball. Weirdly, when I was in high school in St. Louis, for about two weeks in gym class, we played handball, team handball. Why? I have no idea. Where they found the ball for this, I have no idea. Um, but it was a blast. It was so much fun. If you're the goalkeeper, you're an insane person because the person is throwing this fairly heavy ball uh, at you from about 15, 20 feet, as hard as they can. Um, it's not a job many people would want. But, you know, I, I remember that. That stuck with me, how much fun that sport was. And then it disappeared from my life for another, whatever, 35 years. You know, that's a great entryway to my final question for you, play-by-play. This year, you had the opportunity to call NBA playoff games on site for NBA TV. Correct me if I'm wrong. I believe that's the first time that you've done that for them. Is that true? That is true. I did, um, I don't know the number. I did six or seven regular season games, maybe somewhere in that range. And I did three playoff games for NBA TV. And you're right. That is the first time I'd done playoff games. Yeah. And And the most regular season games I'd done also. Yeah. And the regular season ones would be in studio, correct? No, oh. no, we were out on site. They they did that during, they kind of went back and forth in previous years. And obviously during the pandemic, we were in studio with all those. There've been a number of different iterations of this, uh, this franchise they call Center Court. And some of them involved announcers in studio calling games. More recently, we've had our own production team and the announcers uh, courtside doing those games for the last couple of years. So yeah, everything I did this year was on site. And you were, of course, on site for your final game of the season, most exciting game of the season, Jimmy Butler's incredible shot to uh, to force overtime. And then, of course, your memorable call. It's so quiet you could hear a number one seed dropped, which did go a little viral on social media. What was that like for you uh, in terms of just being able to do something at that level? NBA playoffs, most watched uh, playoff game on NBA TV in nine years as well for that Heat Bucks game. What was that like for you? So much fun. Uh, that job is so much fun. And it's something I hope will be the next chapter of my career. Um, and I'll give you more information than you need to have here as an answer. But, you know, I've been trying to do play by play for years. And honestly, they just didn't have the inventory. Um, and they had enough announcers to fill what they had. So it was hard to get in and even get chances to do it over the years because I've been asking for a long time. Um, you know, being in studio as long as I have, there is a danger, I think, sometimes of the sports you're covering almost becoming abstract because you're not there. You're, you're not seeing these incredible athletes up close. 
and we're not seeing their size and their, their explosion and their, their grace and their hand-eye coordination, all that stuff, which when you see it in person, you go, oh yeah, that, I love that. That's, that's why I do this. Um, so I, I do wanna do more of that. And a couple of things happened to give me some chances. One in particular stands out uh, in 2021, on the 4th of July, I was running the Peachtree Road Race here in Atlanta. It's, a, it's an annual 10K. It's the world's largest 10K. And my wife and I are both runners, and we do it just about every year. We had just run the race, and uh, I'm, we're on the porch of some friends of ours. We're having a little post-race reception. And I noticed, I get my phone out of my car, and I noticed there are all kinds of texts and calls and things. And it's a Sunday, and it's the 4th of July. And I'm thinking honestly to myself, because I was on call that day for NBA TV, I'm thinking, oh God, you know, Bill Russell has passed or, or something along those lines. No, it turns out uh, it was Tara August calling me, um, asking if I could call the TBS baseball game uh, that Sunday afternoon out of Philadelphia, even though we were calling it from our studios in Atlanta. It was the last week the TBS game of the week was still going to be in studio. And I said to her, when is the game? And she said, it's at one o'clock. It's like 10 in the morning and I'm sweaty and unshaven and at a friend's house. And um, as I pointed out to her, wasn't covering baseball at that point. And also not for nothing, had never called a baseball game in my life, but somebody had missed a flight and there were extenuating circumstances and they just didn't have someone to do it. And she said, if you want to take a moment and think about it, you may fall back. I said, I'm going to do that. And I talked to my wife. My wife knew I wanted to do more play-by-play. -play. Um, and we talked it over a little bit. And I said, this is an opportunity, obviously. But also, what if I screw it up? Like, what if it goes really, really badly? They may never call me again. Ultimately, I decided to do it. And a couple of things happened in my favor. Or primarily, I had Ron Darling with me. A, Ron is a phenomenal human being. Um, B, he understood the situation and that I was being called in on short notice and wasn't didn't have time to really prep the way he would for a baseball game. And C, he does this every day of his life during the summer. He calls games every day. He knows everything. So I was able to do the game. I wouldn't say it went great, but nothing disastrous happened. Ron bailed me out on a number of occasions, and it generally went well. And that opened some doors for me in terms of, okay, we appreciate you were available and you said yes. It went okay. I had them went out of my way to get feedback from them, to say what they liked, what they didn't like, et cetera. And from there, long story now, very long, but from there, I was able to get some more opportunities and transition into some more games this past season doing NBA, and hopefully even more of those next year. We'll see. Yeah, that kind of gets to what uh, Sean Grandy likes to say, you know, always say yes, right? If someone asks you yeah. to do something, you say yes. Uh, that's just a flexibility that you have to have to get the kinds of assignments that you want. And it's just, it's an interesting, it's an interesting business. That is, it is for sure. Saying yes is generally a good idea. Yeah. It's not for everybody though. It's definitely not for everyone. That kind of, uh, that kind of availability. Oh, it was, it was the most terrifying thing I've ever done in the context of, of television, which is generally not that scary, but you know, it was nerve wracking for sure. Again, never done a baseball game, wasn't covering baseball. Um, had like an hour to prep for the two teams involved. So we're not getting, you know, we're not getting deep dive 
Bob Costa stories, you know, about the 1967 version of the Phillies uh, or the, you know, the 84 Padres World Series team, we're getting surface level. Here's a here's the batter who's entering the box, right? And here are some a few numbers that I have in front of me. And, you know, it's not like I didn't know any of these guys because I'm a sports fan, but, you know, it's very different from generally keeping up with a sport to immersing yourself in the way you would to call a game. By the way, also had my best Peachtree time ever that day. So it was a it was a big day. It was unusually cool here in Atlanta. And I'm sure I'm not the only one, but I, yeah, I had an unusually fast time. Yeah, well, that's good. Would you have been able to beat the freeze that uh, that time? No, there's no beating the freeze. Hey, my, my chances of ever beating the freeze were over a long, long time ago. Ah, well, yeah, probably still better than mine, but, uh, <laughs> you know. Hey, Matt, thank you so much for taking the time to do this and uh, staying with us for so long. It's been about 40 minutes, so I really appreciate you uh, uh, answering all these questions and uh, great conversation and uh, really interesting stories. I'm I'm happy always to engage in TV nerdery. Yeah. <laughs> oh, hey, we'd love to have you back sometime. Absolutely. All right. Great talking with Matt Weiner. Uh, hope you enjoyed that conversation. And now we're going to dive on into some sports media topics, starting with the U.S. Open, most watched in four years for the victory by Wyndham Clark. Uh, not really all that notable. Let's be real. It's a West Coast U.S. Open. You're going to get a nice viewership number for a West Coast U.S. Open. When we say it's the most watched in four years, it's only the second West Coast U.S. Open in four years. What we really mean is it had more viewers than the previous West Coast U.S. Open two years ago. Uh, Drew, I'll bring you in for some short talk about the U.S. Open. Yeah, you know, um, I actually didn't know that number until you just said it um, right now. So that's that's very interesting. But uh, even more impressive, I mean, I'm, I want to give NBC some props here. I, I think they've been getting a lot of flack for the actual broadcast. I'm not really going to talk about the actual broadcast, but... The broadcast windows that NBC had on Saturday and Sunday were very long. Um, I think on Saturday, they had 10 hours of coverage and, and Sunday, maybe uh, eight or nine, which is incredible. I mean, obviously, it makes sense. It's on the West Coast and they want that East Coast primetime viewership, but they still started around or even a little before the same time that normal major championship coverage would start on a broadcast network. So. I would like to give NBC some props for that because as a golf sycophant, uh, I'll sit there and watch all 10 hours of coverage. I, I'll leave it on this note that you know we had four possible storylines going into Sunday with Rory, Ricky Fowler, Scotty Scheffler, and Wyndham Clark. And I'm not trying to take anything away from Wyndham Clark. He's a great story, but we did unfortunately probably get the least interesting story of possible. So... I didn't mind it. You know, NBC went overboard talking about his mother's passing, but I don't follow golf. So they were going after viewers like me. That was the hook. Um, I felt good that he won. You know, I was interested to see Fowler do it. They all talk, they've been talking about Ricky Fowler for, you know, since the Obama administration. <laughs> uh, you know, McElroy would have been interesting. Certainly Spieth, if he was even remotely in contention, would have been nice. But you know, look, if you can't have someone people know, then a, a nice appealing story, an underdog story. I mean, nothing wrong with that. Again, I'm I'm not a casual. I'm the ultimate casual <laughs> when it comes to golf. It's I'm not Kornheiser and Wilbon. Kornheiser yeah. and Wilbon can talk about that all the time. For us golf fans, it's like 
there there is one profile written about Wyndham Clark before you know he won the U.S. Open, and obviously it's about his personal story about his mom, and you know he went through lots of struggles during college, yeah. quit golf for a couple of years, came back. Um, so I people that pay attention, I guess, knew the story, and and it felt like NBC just needed a little bit more. That pretty much covers it for this week. Not a lot going on, folks. Get used to it. This is the summer. Next week, we have another guest. We'll be talking about, I don't even know what, maybe the NBA draft ratings, perhaps? Ratings for the College World Series, probably? Uh, yeah, yeah. We, we are right into the thick of the dead period. You know, we're taping Tuesday evening. The Stanley Cup final could have ended yesterday, if it had gone seven. The NBA finals could have ended on Father's Day. Uh, but instead, the Heat and Panthers gave us nothing, and we are fully into July mode. So uh, it is what it is. Uh, we hope you keep listening during this slow period, and we'll be back here again next week. Thank you, and good night. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.